remain standing for our gospel lesson, also our sermon text from Matthew 5, and I'm going to read verses 10 to 12. Listen to the gospel of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand and believe and do your word. And we ask this fervently and humbly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. The Bible says that the Christian life will be filled, in fact it says that it should be filled, with both joy and sorrow. Joy amidst trials is the believer's experience in this life. That's what Jesus promises in John 16 verse 33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation, trials. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So, Jesus mixes peace, or joy, through the Spirit with tribulation, trials. And we're to be of good cheer. Joys and trials are necessary parts of the fabric of the Christian life. And the good news is that God is the weaver. God lovingly weaves joy and woes together to produce a life that's deeper and richer and more satisfying than anything that we could weave on our own. More specifically though, the Bible says in many different passages that followers of Jesus Christ will experience joy amidst persecution. Not just Generic trials of all kinds, but persecution. So believers won't just face the trials and tribulations of living in a fallen world. They'll also be persecuted because of their righteousness. Persecution at some level is inevitable. It's the natural consequence of exhibiting true Christian character, virtues. It's a consequence of living out The Beatitudes. And true believers will find joy in their persecutions. Persecution doesn't drive out Christian joy. It doesn't drive it away. Persecution helps to fortify Christian joy. For the disciple of Jesus Christ, suffering for Christ makes the joy sturdier. It gives it character and depth supernatural joy that is joy that only the Holy Spirit can give in the midst of suffering 
has been the experience of the church from the very beginning. In fact, it was the experience of many of the saints before the coming of Christ. When Peter and the other apostles were flogged before the Sanhedrin soon after Pentecost, in Acts 5.41, the text says that the apostles left the Sanhedrin after they'd been beaten, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That's the name of Jesus. Now later in Acts, after Paul had been stoned by unbelievers, he and Barnabas told the people in Acts 14.22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In Matthew 5, in the final beatitude that we are discussing, talking about, meditating on today, Jesus establishes the mysterious and seemingly paradoxical relationship between persecution on the one hand and joy on the other hand. Let me read again verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake or because of me. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One of the Puritans said that the reason Jesus repeated himself in that statement is because the statement is so incredible. It's hard to believe that Jesus is saying what he's saying. It's hard to believe what he's saying about the connection between joy and persecution. Are we really supposed to rejoice and be exceedingly glad, overflowing with gladness when people revile us? And say evil things against us. Lie about us. Because of our commitment to Jesus. On account of our following Christ. You'll also notice that Jesus gave the first seven Beatitudes in the third person. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are... Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's all third person. And that's how the eighth beatitude actually starts. Blessed are those who are persecuted for their righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But the repetition in the next verse, in verse 11, gets more personal. Jesus addresses his audience directly in the second person. You. Blessed are you. When they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me. It's the first time in these Beatitudes he gets personal in that second person direct address. So right off the bat we see that this Beatitude is different. It's unique. It stands out. It's longer. Jesus repeats himself and in his repetition he personalizes it. By addressing us in the second person. Blessed are you. Jesus also puts it at the end, obviously. and It's the capstone of the Beatitudes. And all of this tells us that the eighth Beatitude is of supreme importance to the Christian. To the church of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the first things we also need to notice 
from this passage and the rest of the Bible too, the rest of the New Testament, as we've seen and will see, supports this. Persecution is inevitable to some degree. To some degree, we can expect persecution. Maybe not the most extreme, maybe what we might call low-level persecution, but it's inevitable. When you're living a righteous life to the glory of Christ, other people will mock you and insult you and speak evil about you and say things that aren't true. Sometimes it'll even come from professing Christians. Persecution for righteousness is inevitable. Notice what verse 11 says. Jesus doesn't say in verse 11 that if they revile and persecute you, but when they do so. When they do so. Bobby and I were talking the other day about fasting, and he pointed out to me, tongue-in-cheek, that the Bible says, if you sin and when you fast. And the idea is, ideally, you should fast even more than you sin. Well, the Bible also says, when they revile and persecute you. If your life is bringing glory to Christ, if you're seeking first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, insults of some kind will likely come at some point. Of course, Jesus isn't saying, and the New Testament doesn't teach, that you as a Christian will be suffering every day, most of the day, as a result of your righteousness. But Jesus is saying, and the New Testament does affirm, that Christians will suffer disgrace because of their commitment to Christ. We can expect that. Persecution is a natural consequence of loving God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. If you live like Jesus lived, you will probably face persecution at some level. It's inevitable. And that's how the 12 apostles understood what Jesus is saying here. That's how they understood this eighth beatitude. The apostle Peter who, of course, heard the Lord Jesus give this sermon in person, live, the Sermon on the Mount, he ended up quoting the eighth beatitude twice in his first epistle. Once in 1 Peter 3, and again in 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 3.14 says, If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Blessed are you. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. In the next chapter, 1 Peter 4.14, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 1 Peter really is the epistle that most stresses the inevitability of the church's suffering. Peter writes in chapter 4, right before that verse I just read, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. There's that overflowing joy. So the, the words and the ideas from the Beatitude, from the Eighth Beatitude, 
are represented here in Peter's writings. Paul, who himself endured much persecution, far more than average, says the same thing to Timothy. He says this in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's a fairly absolute statement, it seems. In Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Paul wrote his first letter to the Christians at Thessalonica after they had endured a period of persecution in that city, in Thessalonica. And in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2-4, Paul says that he sent Timothy to the Thessalonian Christians to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. We're appointed to this suffering. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation. Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles would have agreed that even in the most tolerant nation, the cross would never totally cease to be a symbol of derision and hostility. (coughs) As we did with the other Beatitudes, we need to spend a few minutes discussing what Jesus does not mean. And that's especially true with this beatitude because no beatitude is more misunderstood uh, and misapplied than this one. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted, period. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted as though the Lord Jesus has in mind any persecution that might occur at any time. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. It says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. The suffering that Jesus has in mind is because of righteousness, because of me, for righteousness sake, for my sake. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, blessed are they who are persecuted because by God's grace, they're living like me. And they're living for me. So this means that there's no promise of blessedness for those who are mistreated simply for being a nuisance. Jesus doesn't promise happiness for Christians who are wronged for being objectionable or difficult or foolish or insulting. That's not what he's talking about. Unfortunately, though, that's how a lot of people read it. That's how it gets misinterpreted and misapplied. And those who read it this way tend to delude themselves into thinking that any time they experience conflict, Anytime they're in conflict, they're, being, they're, they're, they're bearing the reproach of Christ. The sad reality, though, is that Christians are often persecuted not for their Christianity, but for their 
lack of it. We don't want to fall into that category. Sometimes they're rejected simply because they have unpleasant personalities. They're rude or insensitive or thoughtless or overbearing or irritable. Or as one commentator put it, they're piously obnoxious. Their piety, their attempts to be faithful are really just obnoxious. There's no aroma of Christ surrounding them. Some Christians are shunned not because of their righteousness, but because of their pride and their judgmental spirit. They're reviled not because of Christ, but because their aroma is the exact opposite of the aroma of Christ. And Peter knew that Jesus was speaking of a specific kind of persecution. Persecution that results from righteousness, from righteous behavior, righteous living, holiness in the midst of sinfulness. Not just persecution for anything. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So if it's God's will, God's will for you to suffer, it's better for you to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So Jesus is not talking about persecution for being a fanatic. In the 1970s, Michael Rowan was tried by a Jewish court for attempting to burn down a mosque, a Muslim mosque, a Muslim place, place of worship in Israel. Rowan's act was not a righteous act. Therefore, those who tried Rowan in court were not persecuting him. His act was a fanatical act. An act that he did on his own. And it was not performed because of righteousness or because of Christ. Fanaticism and acts of defiance are not necessarily righteous. Now they can be, but they're not necessarily righteous. Sometimes defiance can be righteous, of course. But sometimes fanaticism and defiance are simply failures to be peacemakers. The failure to live peaceably with all men, as Paul says, as much as it depends on you. So we see again how these Beatitudes fit together. So if the eighth Beatitude doesn't mean being persecuted for doing wrong, or for being objectionable, or for being fanatical, or for being hard to get along with, or for supporting a cause and a good cause, what does it mean? What's it mean to be persecuted because of righteousness? What's it mean to be reviled because of Christ? It simply means to be persecuted for being like the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. That's what it means. It means being persecuted for being like the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus said that those who are persecuted for being like Him will be happy, will be blessed. They'll be blessed and they'll be filled with joy. And so, not all believers who are insulted or marginalized are being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. 
The righteousness that Jesus is talking about is righteous living. Holiness. It's the same kind of righteousness that Jesus refers to up in verse 6 of Matthew 5 in that fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So another way of saying the eighth beatitude, this is a paraphrase, would be something like this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because they hunger and thirst for righteousness. And because they live righteous lives for the sake and glory of Christ. The world can't tolerate that. The world can't tolerate someone who lives like that consistently. In fact, some professing Christians won't tolerate this kind of sold-out obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they ridicule it. They speak evil against it. Why? The foundational reason a righteous person will be persecuted is that he or she is like Jesus Christ. One of the most important points that we get from these verses. I can't emphasize that enough. That's the point that Jesus makes, particularly at the end of verse 11 when he says, for my sake, because of me, would be another literal translation. Because of me. On account of me. Living like Jesus will cause you to be hated by the world. And often it will cause you to be despised by professing believers who are more like the world than they are like Jesus. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples again from John chapter 15, 18 to 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So what's Jesus telling us here? He's he's saying that since the wind was in his face, it'll be in ours too. When Jesus came into the world in perfect holiness, he exposed the world's evil. And men hated him for it. Before he came, men were getting away with hypocrisy, lying, dishonesty, greed, selfishness, and a long list of other sins and vices. After he came, though, these vices, these sins were revealed for what they are, just as the filth of a sewer is revealed for what it is when someone shines a strong light into one of the openings. Men hated how Christ exposed their evil hearts and their evil natures. And they killed him for it. They murdered Jesus because he shined the light on the sewage in their hearts. He brought their spiritual cesspools into the light of day. In a similar way, the world will hate the followers of this Christ. 
followers who expose evil and who through their righteous living shine light in the darkness. That's what you do when you live for Christ. The light's shining in you and shining through you, which means that the darkness is being driven out. Things are being exposed. You're a walking lamp in Christ. Men will hate you for that. Sometimes church members will hate you for that. Is there anything in your conduct that reveals the righteousness of Christ? Is Jesus Christ seen in your character? Are you one of those walking lamps? Is your, is your life shining any light into the darkness around you? Now it's true that we live in a country that more or less has adopted many Christian values, including tolerance. Of course, some of those values have been twisted. But we can be thankful that the persecutions that we face in America are not likely to be what they are in other countries in the Near East and Far East, at least not for now, at least not historically. However, however, it's also true that much of our Christianity in America has sunk to a level where it's hardly noticeable. It's hardly noticed. The world has become tolerant of the church, yes, to varying degrees, but the church has become far more tolerant of the world. And that's not good. Some of the reasons we face so little persecution in the Western church are reasons that we should thank God for. Reasons that we should be thankful for. It's okay to be grateful that that you haven't ever been severely persecuted. We're not supposed to relish persecution or go looking for it. We're called to rejoice in it. And we're, we're called to consider it joy when in God's providence we face persecution. When God's will is that we endure trials of that kind. But Jesus doesn't tell us to go seeking after it and to delight in it in that sense. God, again, at least for now, has seen fit to spare you and me from the persecutions of the early church and persecutions that many Christians face today, daily, in other continents, in other countries. And we can be thankful that God has spared us. We should give thanks. Not, we shouldn't feel guilt. We should be grateful. However, we should be saddened that one of the reasons... One of the reasons we face so little persecution in the Western church is that the church has become like the world. In John 7, 7, Jesus makes a chilling statement to some of the people who were following Him. Some of those followers that would end up proving to be false followers, false believers. He tells them, the world cannot hate you. Remember what he said in the passage I just read a few minutes ago from John 15 about the, how the world will hate you. It 
must hate you. It's going to because you're not of it. If you were of the world, they'd love you. If you're not of the world, they, they're going to hate you. So that's, that's how Jesus sets it up. But in, but in John 7, he tells certain of his followers, the world can't hate you. It's incapable of hating you. Why? Because they were of the world. They are the world. The peace of the world is what they're after, not the peace of Christ. And so they'll get peace among the world. They're not going to be hated by the world. The people of the world can't hate you the way they hate Jesus if you're one of them. If you're going after their approval, their peace, you'll be fine for a while. But you won't have the peace that comes from being hated by the world. That comes by being connected to Jesus. So those are the two categories. You're of the world or you're of Christ. You're hated by the world or loved by the world. And that was the case with many of the people who followed Jesus for a time during His earthly ministry. They never faced persecution from the world because they never truly separated themselves from the world. The world can't hate you, Jesus says. That's unsettling to hear. A surefire way to escape persecution is to live like the world lives. But see, that's a false peace. Surefire way, though, to escape the persecution that Jesus is talking about is to live like the world lives and to laugh at its humor, to immerse yourself in its culture and its music and its entertainment. Smile non-threateningly when God is mocked. Act as if all religions converge on the same road. Don't mention judgment or hell. Use foul language to fit in. Make no moral judgments. Don't come down hard on anything. Take no stand on the ethical and political issues. And above all, don't share your faith. Follow this formula and it will be smooth sailing for you. The peace of the world will be yours. On the other hand, if you follow Christ the way that He's calling you to follow Him, there will be a price to pay. You won't get that peace of the world, but it's a greater peace. There will be a price to pay though. Not every day, maybe not even on most days, but certainly on some days. So so ask yourself, have you ever put the principles of biblical righteousness into play, into action in your home, in your job, in your business? Have you ever paid the price at any level? Has your commitment to Christ ever led you to put something serious on the line? Like your reputation, or your job, or certain relationships, or a profit. You might be up against such a rotten situation at work that if you did the righteous thing, you'd be fired. At the very least, not promoted. If so, you're in a position to choose the way of Christ instead of the way of the world. 
if you make the right choice, it may lead to low-level persecution. If so, you can rejoice and be exceedingly glad. You're, you're, you're going after a greater joy, a greater peace. Less than 200 years after Jesus preached this sermon, after he spoke this beatitude uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, a businessman came to the great theologian and churchman and church father, Tertullian. And he came to, to, to Tertullian with a similar problem. His business interests had been conflicting with his loyalty to Christ. This businessman mentioned his problem to Tertullian, and he ended by asking him, what can I do? I must live. Tertullian replied, must you? Must you live? The believer's choice between righteousness and a livelihood must always be righteousness. When it comes down to a choice between loyalty to Christ and making a living, living or making a better living, Tertullian held that the real Christian chooses Christ every time. No discussion. It's a glorious thing when the church and individual believers are persecuted because of their righteousness. Because that means that they're living like Christ and for Christ. They're living for Christ publicly and privately. And that brings glory to God. The eighth beatitude not only describes the nature of being persecuted because of righteousness, it also promises happiness to the one who is persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Persecution is glorious because the one who experiences persecution for the sake of Christ experiences elite joy. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, exceedingly joyful. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5.12. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who came before you. If you've never experienced being insulted or reviled or mistreated in any way because of your righteousness, then you might be thinking, how can, how can persecution add to the Christian's joy? How can insults increase happiness? How does that work? If you, if you have experienced it, you're not asking those questions, maybe. Or at least, you're not asking them to the same degree. Here are three ways that persecution can contribute to your joy. First, persecution is evidence that you are united to Jesus Christ. That you are one of His. That you belong to Him. That you're connected to Him vitally. Jesus says in John 15, 19, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you are not belonging to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. When you're persecuted for Christ's sake, you can be happy in this proof, this evidence 
that, you, that you're His, that you belong to Him, and that you'll be united to Him forever. So it's reassurance. Second, when you're persecuted because of your righteousness, you can be certain that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. You can be certain that, that God is your Father and He loves you and He's making you a more faithful son or daughter. You can be sure that the Holy Spirit at work in you is conforming you to the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. You can be happy in this. You can be exceedingly glad about this. It, it should cause you to rejoice that you're suffering in this way. Suffering in a way that's making you look more like your Savior, Jesus. And third, finally, your thir- the, the third reason and, and your ultimate, ultimate source of joy in persecution is your final reward in the next life. That's what Jesus makes explicit here in this text. Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. And that reward is immeasurably great. It's almost like great is an understatement. It's, it's really great. Greater than anybody can imagine. Immeasurable. What you do for God's glory will not go unrewarded. God won't permit it. I know when, when we start talking about God rewarding what we do, we, we get a little uneasy, right? Because we know that if God really rewarded us for everything that we do, all things considered, it wouldn't be good. The, the balance wouldn't come out well. But, but He reward, rewards us in Christ. His judgment of us is merciful because we're in His Son, Jesus. Let me remind you of Paul's assurances in 2 Corinthians 4.17, a verse that probably most of you know. For this light... Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, that glory can't even, it doesn't compare to anything that you experience, experience here in this life. No affliction, no suffering, no amount of it adds up to anything like what is equal to the glory, the positive on the other side. And listen to how Paul reflects on his future reward in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Paul knows that he's about to die. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. That means all who have looked forward, forward to His coming. Being insulted for the sake of Jesus Christ is burdensome to believers in the same way that sails are burdensome to a ship. In the same way that wings are burdensome to a bird. We've come to the end of our exposition of the eighth beatitude, the final beatitude. And I want to add one last comment 
And this comment is, I think, to all of us. It's to those of us who will never endure the kind of unspeakable, high-level persecution that, say, the original apostles endured and that many other believers have endured since that time, including many today, literally today. I want to say a word to those of us in that category. Most of us in this room will not be tortured for Christ in a way that justifies the phrase tortured for Christ. Most of us will not go down in history as Christian martyrs. And that's okay. If that's God's will, we can be thankful for the blessings. Most of us will never experience experience anything like severe persecution. So what about us? How, how does this apply to us? Well, we may be certain that God is pleased even with what we might call small acts of faithfulness and sacrifice as well as the greater ones. He's glorified when you patiently bear small insults for his sake just as he is when other Christians bear more spectacular persecution. After all, Paul says in that verse I just read from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, that all afflictions for the sake of Christ are, from one perspective, in one sense, they're all light and momentary. Even Paul's persecutions, apparently, in the grand scheme of things, even Paul's afflictions fall into the category of light and momentary. Now, I don't want to minimize that, what what Paul endured and what others endure, or, or flatten it all out. That's not what I'm doing here. But there is a sense in which all suffering is light and momentary when you compare it to what's on the other side, which is greater and eternal. The re- Reward for our faithfulness in this life, I'm sorry, in the life to come, will far outweigh any suffering that we endure in this life. And that's even true for the Apostle Paul. What this means is that our reward in heaven is not primarily based on our suffering or our righteousness in suffering. It's based primarily on the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Our reward is not grounded in what we endure faithfully in this life. That's not the foundation of it. It's grounded in what Christ endured for us on our behalf on the cross and in His life leading up to the cross. Your suffering and the reward for your suffering are not equals. And that's true for everyone. The reward is greater than the suffering. And that's true if you are a martyr like Stephen or if your persecution is at a much lower severity level. The reward that Jesus won for you and me and Stephen and Paul on the cross does not compare to any affliction that you or I or Stephen or Paul or anyone has ever endured. 
So take comfort in this. And turn to Christ for the victory and for the reward that is yours in Him. Let's pray. Father, help us to be faithful when we face trials that are the result of our faithfulness to you. Sustain us in those times. And by your Spirit, do your will in us. If your will is for us to suffer greatly, then help us to accept it and to rejoice in it. Prepare us for what is ahead. In the name of Jesus, amen.